All right. <clears throat> I want to finish what we began a couple of weeks ago, which will prepare us for the glorious entrance of Jesus Christ into the world uh, in what the Bible calls his coming to earth. Uh, that happens in Revelation 19. And what we attempted to do last time, if you remember, was to differentiate between that coming, which is referred to in many other passages of Scripture, and what you and I are waiting for. Remember that we are not waiting for the second coming, at least not initially. I don't mean, of course, that we're not anticipating it. But the immediate thing that we are waiting for is not the coming of Jesus Christ to earth. The last time I was trying to support that thesis by pointing us to what we are expecting, what we are awaiting. And this is what 1 Thessalonians 4.17 refers to as the catching away or the catching up. Uh, theologians have a word for that based on a Latin verb which describes that event. And that word is what? The rapture. We are waiting for the rapture or the catching away. Now, the majority of the Lord's people historically, and I mentioned this last time, uh, seem to have assumed that this catching away or rapture, as we'll call it from now on, uh, will occur at the same time that Jesus returns to earth, uh, meaning that in their view, uh, the rapture and the second coming are really the same event. But last time I was giving you a number of reasonable scriptural inferences, not explicit statements, but implicit logical inferences based on a group of passages that seem to indicate that the rapture and the second coming are not one event, but actually they are two events. Let's begin today by seeing how many of these points you can remember. I gave you six of them. So how many of you can recall these six? I've given you all the answers in your handout except for the couple of blanks there, so you should be okay. But if you were faced with someone who really wanted to know why uh, does your church, why do you believe in the rapture? You were trying to give them some scriptural evidence for that viewpoint. What would you say? All right, here, here are some possibilities. One is the natural sequence of what is found in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, chapters 4 and 5. You remember that in chapter 1, Paul writes about those people as people who are waiting for the coming of God's Son. So in chapter 4, he gives them one of the longest explanations of what will happen at that catching away. And in chapter 5, he goes right into talking now about the day of the Lord, which refers to a period of time including the tribulation. So this is the natural sequence when you're reading through this book. Uh, they're waiting for the coming of Christ. What's that going to be like? Uh, chapter 4, we're caught up to meet him in the air. Well, then, well, what's going to happen after that? Well, the day of the Lord, chapter 5. And that leads us to the second consideration that I gave you, which is this. When the apostle is describing the day of the Lord, you remember that he refers to it as a time of sudden destruction. But in chapter 5, verse 9, he assures those people 
that they have not been appointed by God to wrath, but to obtain salvation, so that whether they are awake or asleep, meaning that regardless of whether they're alive at the time or they're in the grave, it is coming, they should be with Jesus. The question that I raised last time was the scriptural justification behind anybody restricting the wrath of God in that passage to the final wrath of the lake of fire, which is what many people do. Uh, you know, they say, well, you know, when it says we're not appointed to wrath, well, that's just really talking about the fact that we've been saved from the lake of fire. God hasn't appointed us to hell. Well, it's true, but the lake of fire isn't under discussion in that passage anywhere. Yeah, I mean, you're ripping it out of context to make that single application. I mean, I would agree that we have been saved from the wrath of the lake of fire. No question about that. But in this passage, the only thing under discussion is the day of the Lord and the sudden destruction of that and the comfort of knowing that we have not been appointed to that wrath. In fact, we're commanded right there in the passage to strengthen one another with this truth. Paul is clearly talking about the day of the Lord and not hellfire, and I think that is a strong consideration for us. Thirdly, looking again at First and Second Thessalonians, which are largely about the future coming of the Lord Jesus, moving to the second letter, you also need to consider the nature of those people's confusion about Jesus coming and our gathering together with him. Remember that? Paul had to write to them because they were troubled when it came to that subject. Well, why were they troubled? Paul just wrote to them in his previous letter a couple of months ago, and he said, well, look, be encouraged. Be comforted. Right? We're waiting for the catching up. Then the day of the Lord is coming with sudden destruction, but God hadn't appointed you to that wrath. After he wrote to them like that, why are they now troubled? What's troubling them? Well, somebody was falsely representing Paul's teaching. And he was telling these people that the day of the Lord had already come. So now they're confused, and Paul's got to sort through that confusion. But the question really is this. If it's true that the coming for which they were waiting was the, at the very end of the day of the Lord, then why would they be troubled to find out they're in it? Right? I mean, that would seem like it's great news it's happening. It's only going to be seven years long, just as Daniel prophesied. So, hey, we're very, very near to the very thing we are waiting for. Jesus is coming. Hold the line. He's on the way. On the other hand, if their expectation from Paul's previous letter was that they would be caught up in the rapture, and then comes the day of the Lord. What does it mean to them if they are now in the day of the Lord? Well, it means we either misunderstood what Paul said about meeting the Lord in the air, or we missed the whole event entirely, or something else. But this is troubling news. I'd be troubled too if I knew I was in the tribulation. After an apostle told me I was not appointed to that wrath, something's not... Lining up here. What I'm saying <clears throat> is that the nature of their confusion suggests that their understanding was exactly what we find in the natural sequence of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 when Paul encouraged them to wait 
for Jesus to catch them up in the air. Number four, in that same passage, when Paul is trying to ease their troubled minds, he gives to them some certain unmistakable evidences that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, the day of the Lord hasn't come. How do you know that, Paul? Well, there are certain things that have to happen for that to be the case. In the first place, the day of the Lord will not come unless there's been a falling away, great apostasy. Secondly, he says, the man of sin or the Antichrist has to be revealed. And thirdly, he says, somebody has to be taken out of the way. Because right now, somebody is doing a work of restraining and holding back lawlessness on the earth right now. But then he says, he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So last time, I just kind of raised this question. Who do you think is powerful enough to restrain the work of the devil in spreading lawlessness on the earth and in raising up the Antichrist? Who can possibly restrain and counteract the devil and do so for nearly 2,000 years? Well, I suggested to you uh, last time that if we let our Old Testament set the precedent here, we really have a parallel situation to this right before the flood, right? I mean, before the flood, you had a civilization <coughs> where the Bible says they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marry, the Scripture says. So what does God do? He destroys that civilization. Well, this is a parallel to what's going to happen at the end of this age. What are people going to be doing? Well, Jesus said they're going to be eating and drinking, going to be marrying, going to be giving in marriage, and a sudden destruction. And then God deals with the whole earth again. So this is a clear parallel situation made in Scripture. Well, in that day, the civilization was being restrained by what? Well, in Genesis 6.3, the Lord says, my spirit will not strive with men forever. So, if that's the precedent setter, who or what over a period of 2,000 years has been counteracting the work of the devil? All I'm saying is that you're going ha to have to be uh, very scriptural and irrefutable in your evidence in order to overthrow the position that the restrainer is simply the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit's going to be taken away so that the Antichrist can be revealed so that his kingdom can reach the apex in the tribulation. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit will just kind of leave the church here by themselves? No. Obviously, the removal of the restrainer, if the Holy Spirit is the restrainer, implies that the church is also gone from the earth and will not be here during the tribulation. And that leads me to number five and well, I think this is probably the strongest consideration because the statement here uh, really is so explicit. And that is uh, what we find in Revelation 3, 10 and 11. When the Spirit says to the churches that they will be removed from the hour of trial that will come upon the whole world to try it. Now, remember that the promise is not that they will be kept through the trouble. 
You know, they're going to go through it, but they're going to be uh, you know, kept from getting into a lot of pain and sorrow. They'll be kept through the trouble, but they will be kept from the time of trouble, kept from the hour when this is happening. So how are they going to be kept? Read through to verse 11. Don't stop. Verse 10 and 11. I will keep you from the hour of trial, which is to come upon the whole world. Behold, I'm coming quickly to hold fast what you have. If you just take away the verse division, which is not inspired, you can see that this is an explicit statement that he will keep his people out of that period of time because he's coming. He's coming to get them. He's coming to take them away from that time of tribulation. And then lastly, consider that the millennial kingdom needs to be populated by what kind of people? Glorified or non-glorified? Unglorified, right? Remember that glorified people, uh, they've gone to heaven. They're not going to marry. They're not going to give in marriage. So they're not going to have any kids, right? But non-glorified people in the millennial kingdom, they will marry. They will have kids. They will repopulate the earth. Now, when you read Matthew 25 about the judgment of the nations, it's clear that all of those who resisted Christ, are not righteous. They don't have eternal life. They are cast out. You don't get to go in the kingdom. Okay. But those during the tribulation who have been right toward God, they are told to enter into the kingdom which is prepared for them. And these are the non-glorified people. They will marry, will bear children from generation to generation until the end of the millennial period. That last generation will then be deceived again by the devil. They will rebel against God. We're going to talk about that another time. The point is that if the rapture is the same as the second coming and takes place just before Jesus sets up that kingdom, where are you going to get the non-glorified saints for the kingdom? Because remember, at the rapture, all of the Lord's people are caught up. All of them are glorified. They're changed in a moment. So where are you going to get non-glorified people to enter the kingdom and have kids? However, if the rapture occurs at the beginning of the last week of Daniel's prophecy. And then you have the day of the Lord. And there's this seven-year period of time, which we've already seen, by the way, the greatest period of evangelistic activity and success in the history of the world. I mean, many uh, will be saved. Now, of course, many will also be martyred. Some of them will remain. And in addition to that, you've got the nation of Israel, <coughs> which will be converted in a day when Jesus returns. So all of those people are not caught up. They're not glorified at the rapture. No, they remain in their non-glorified bodies to inherit the earthly form of Christ's kingdom. So I hope that you have these considerations in mind, or at least some of them, and that you can put them into some uh, logical format for somebody to understand. And today I want to finish this topic before we move into chapter 19. Um, so far... I've given you reasons for separating uh, the rapture from the second coming. And if we are 
truly being scriptural about this, then that would mean that there are certain ways in which the rapture <clears throat> and the second coming will differ from one another. I want to look at these differences very quickly for a moment. Number one, they would definitely differ in their purposes. What would be the purpose for the rapture? Well, it's stated in passages like John 14, 3, where Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The purpose for the rapture would simply be to remove Jesus' people from the earth in order to take them to himself. What is the purpose for the second coming? The purpose for that is to establish his reign on earth. Is to establish a kingdom. The purpose of the first is to remove his people. The purpose for the second is to establish his kingdom here on earth. If we are correct in our understanding, then these two events would also differ as to their timing. In what sense? In the sense that the rapture would occur before he displays his wrath here on this earth. Well, the second coming would occur as the climax of the display of that wrath. And we'll see one passage that's very clear about that in a moment. This is also what you see when you go right through the book of Revelation in sequence. You finally come to chapter 19 after a clear demonstration of God's wrath for seven years from chapter 6 and following. It finally comes to a climax. When the Lord arrives with a sword in his mouth, he breaks the rebellion of the nations with a rod of iron. That second coming is its climax. Yet the rapture would happen before any of that. Why not? Well, because God hasn't appointed us to any of the wrath of the day of the Lord. And thirdly, they would, of course, differ in the location where Christ's people will meet him. Now I want you to turn to Revelation 20 with me. Revelation 20. Hmm. Chapter 19 <clears throat> records the second coming, not the rapture, but the second coming. When you get to chapter 20, Jesus has come on the earth. Beast has been taken. False prophet has been taken. The armies of the Antichrist have been fed to the birds and the beasts of the field. Now verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years. He cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more, a thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands, as they came to life. All of those martyred in the tribulation, this, these people, that came to life and lived and reigned with Christ 
thousand years. But verse 5, the rest of the dead did not live again <clears throat> until the thousand years were finished. Of course, the rest of the dead means all the lost people, right? They're going to be raised, but not yet. So according to the sequence of events, when are the tribulation saints raised to meet Jesus? After he comes to earth, right? After he destroys the Antichrist. <laughs> it's after he feeds uh, the armies to the beasts and the birds. It's after the thrones are set up. It's after the devil has been bound. And then it says the souls of those martyred during the tribulation period come to life. So it's after Jesus comes back to reign on earth. So the location for the saints meeting Jesus at the second coming is obviously on the earth. But in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, it talks about the dead in Christ being raised and meeting the Lord along with all those who are alive in that day. But where does that happen? You meet him in the air, right? And what you have here is a clear difference in the location of God's people at the time of their meeting Christ. When it comes to 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, Jesus brings back the souls of those who are asleep. Bodies are raised and they're reunited. And then we who are alive and remain are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. In Revelation 20, it's talking about a resurrection that occurs after he's come back to earth. And he's destroyed the armies and the enemies are dead. And only then do the dead in Christ from the tribulation get raised. They're raised to live and reign with Christ on earth. These are two totally different meeting places. And then number four, <clears throat> the two events differ sharply in their character. If what we're thinking is correct, there would be a clear difference in character. What is the character of his coming at the rapture? Well, you know, we can almost talk about that emotionally, can't we? What would the emotion of that moment be like? It is the return of the bridegroom for his bride. Uh, we are headed for a wedding, time for celebration, time for feasting, for joy. What is the character of the second coming? Well, you can read about that in chapter 19 and also in 2 Thessalonians 1.8. Listen to this verse. At the second coming, it says, he comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 19 describes it as a great battle. He has a sword in his mouth. People's blood is shed. The beast and birds eat their dead bodies. And the devil is overthrown. It's the devastation of war. It's a completely different character in these two comings. What we are thinking is correct. And that leads me to number five. So far we have a difference in their purposes. Time they occur, one before the wrath of God. One is the climax of his wrath. Be a difference in the location where God's people meet Christ. <clears throat> one is in the air, the other on the earth after his return. The difference in the whole character of the event, one being a bridegroom and a bride and a wedding celebration, the other is fire and vengeance and judgment and war. Now, fifthly, there's a difference 
in what we would refer to as their imminency. <clears throat> At this point, I really want to slow down, first of all, so I can get some coffee. But I want to talk about <clears throat> imminence itself for just a moment. And I want to go over it in a little bit of detail. It's related to the rapture and the second coming, and then uh, we'll be finished for today. What is imminency? Not a Bible word. Like the word rapture, not found in the Bible. However, both of these words are used by theologians as convenient definitions for truth that is in the Bible. I mean, people argue, ah, oh, you know, those terms aren't found in the Bible, can't be true. Well, just remind them that the word trinity, and the word substance, and the word inerrancy, and the word Bible is not even in the Bible. Okay. Many other theological terms like that. These are not Bible terms, and that's okay, because they conveniently capture truths that are taught in the Bible, and no decent theologian will disagree with <clears throat> Now, the word imminent refers... <clears throat> to something that is near, but the timing is not specific. You've got to remember both of those things. It doesn't just refer to something that is near, but also to something that you're not quite sure of the exact timing. Let me illustrate. We come uh, into our building on a Sunday morning at 9.50. It would be correct for you to say the service is near. It would not be correct for you to say it's imminent, the way theologians use that term. Why not? Because you know the specific time when the service is supposed to start, assuming that we're starting on time, of course. <laughs> it's near, and you know the time. It's written on the calendar. <clears throat> but theologians use the word imminent for something that is near, but you don't know the time. Now, it would be correct for you to say right now at 11.10, if that clock is right, at 11.10, the end of the service, well, that's imminent, right? Uh, you could do that when it comes to the end of the service because, I mean, you know it's relatively near. not going to be here till midnight, I hope. <laughs> but you don't know exactly when, and I don't either. Uh, you know, our services end at all different times. So it's always imminent to all of us. In fact, you know, the service could come as soon as I get up to speak. Uh, I could have gotten up today and said, you know what, my voice is just not here, and sorry about that, but uh, we're all going to go home, and realize that I've had enough of preaching to you people, and, you know, if you're not listening to me anyway, and we're just going to, you know, you, you're tired of preaching, so that's it. Uh, you'd never do that. You know, Alexander McLaren, the old Scottish preacher, did that once in a while. We'd get up, and he would say, and I wish I had a Scottish accent to say this in, but he would say, uh, God didn't give me a message for you this week. That was it. <laughs> I always wonder what they thought about that, or <laughs> maybe yet a late Saturday night. I don't know. But theoretically, all right, a preacher could get up and stop at any point. So you don't know when the end is coming, but you know that it's relatively near. And that's the sense in which we are using the word imminent when it comes to these two events, I'm saying that they differ in their imminency. Now, here's what I mean by that. Let's take the second coming. Is the end or the time of the second coming known? 
not to us, but there will be a generation of people who got a pretty good idea, right? I'm talking about those who end up in the tribulation because we know the length of the tribulation. We know that it's seven years. How do we know? Well, again, Daniel 9 tells us. Gabriel said that in the chronology of God's dealings with Israel, there were going to be 69 sets of seven years until the Messiah came. All of that is past history. But then he said there's going to be one last set of seven years. If I go to Revelation, it's amazing. I mean, the book actually divides things into 42 months times two, or 1,260 days times two, or three and a half years times two. Guess what? They all add up to seven years in total. So the tribulation is seven years long. So how do you know it's years? Well, the first set of 69 times seven was seven years. You're going to follow that pattern, then it's seven years. We've gone through this a number of times, so I won't go through it again. The people who are in the tribulation, they're going to see these events taking place. They're going to have a really good idea of when Jesus is coming. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus said to them in the Olivet Discourse. Remember that? He said to them, look, here's how it's going to go down. When you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, just like Daniel said, well, you'll know that you're in the middle of those seven years. So get ready. And then he says, now after the tribulation, you're going to see the signs of the coming of the Son of Man. He even says to them, you know, don't let anyone say to you, well, here he is, or he's out in the desert, or go get him. No, it ain't going to be like that. He said, it's going to be like this, whoosh, boom, like, like lightning, from one end of the sky to the other. So he says, when you see all these things happening, get ready. He's near. He's right at the door. But Matthew 24, 33 says, so my point is that the second coming has clear signs. Jesus gives us those signs. When it comes to the rapture, well, there's no signs. Now, sometimes people say, well, certain things do have to take place, right? I mean, Peter has to become an old man and die because Jesus foretold that. And Jerusalem, well, that's got to be destroyed. And the gospel has got to be preached to every nation in the world, which, by the way, is not technically correct, because as we saw in Revelation, much of that preaching to the nations is going to happen during the tribulation. So, you know, Peter gets old and he dies. That's already happened. Jerusalem is destroyed. That happened a long time ago. But what's left? There are no more signs. There's nothing yet to be fulfilled. If, indeed, the rapture and the second coming are two different events. And they occur at two ends of the tribulation. Now, if that's true, and there's no prophesied event that must take place before the rapture, that means we can say that the rapture is imminent. It's near. We don't know the exact time, but it could be at any moment. Now, the crucial question is this. Does the New Testament itself give us a sense of imminency about the coming of Jesus Christ for his church? I mean, that's the key question, right? Does the New Testament actually communicate that imminence to you? Well, what I want to do in our remaining time is just to sample some passages that address this for a moment. And I want to start with 1 Corinthians 1. You can turn there with me if you will. 
In 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing here to a church that has received more correspondence in the New Testament than any other church. He wrote them two letters. He wrote them 29 chapters. That's a lot. And at the opening of this first letter, he talks about these people, verse 7, people who do not lack in any spiritual gift, but he says, they were eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. What were these people expecting? They were eagerly waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, go to chapter 15. We'll tie this together. <clears throat> chapter 15 is a parallel passage to 1 Thessalonians 4. We read last time. And verse 50 says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's interesting in light of the fact that at the judgment of the nations in Matthew 25, a whole bunch of flesh and blood people are going to enter the kingdom of God, right? They have to because they're going to populate the kingdom with their kids, remember? But in this passage, with reference to what he's talking about here, <laughs> he says flesh and blood cannot enter it. Well, what is he talking about? Read on. How does corruption inherit corruption? Behold, I tell you a mystery. He's going to tell them here something that to that point in time had never been revealed to God's people. In other words, he's claiming to tell them something Jesus never told, talked about. Peter never revealed it. Paul says, hey, I'm going to tell you one of God's secrets. All right? And now they're going to know about it. And we'll know about it. Well, what is the secret? Here it is. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. And it will occur, he says, in a moment. The literal term here is uh, the Greek term for Adam. And that refers to the smallest piece of indivisible matter that the ancient world knew anything about. It's used here with reference to time. <laughs> so this is going to occur in the smallest bit of time that you can imagine. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, where the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. When this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death, rather than experiencing it. Swallowed up in this wonderful moment of victory. Now look at chapter 16, verse 22. And I'll tie these three passages together in a moment. Because this is where he ends this whole letter. He says this, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Maranatha. Love that. That's an Aramaic word. It means our Lord comes. Or it can also mean our Lord come, like a prayer to the Lord. So think of that sequence in this book. <clears throat> you have these people eagerly waiting the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says, hey, I'm going to tell you a mystery about his coming. Did you know that when it comes to this kingdom I'm talking about, flesh and blood cannot inherit it. 
Instead, what's going to happen is that we're all going to be changed. We're going to get immortal bodies. Death will be swallowed up in victory. So, Maranatha, our Lord comes. Come, Lord Jesus. Does that communicate a sense of imminence about his coming? Let me show you another passage, 2 Corinthians 5. Same church, a little more additional revelation here. Verse 1. But we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, and he's speaking metaphorically here of our mortal body, if that's torn down, he says, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In other words, a body that's not perishable, it's not mortal, waiting for us. For in this we groan. What are we groaning for? Earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. And he means uh, having a disembodied spirit. We're not going to be found like that. Now, he's going to explain here what he means by groaning to be clothed with our habitation from heaven. Because you would think he means what some Christians mean when they get old and some disease takes them and they lie bedridden and all they want to do is die. Right? It's not euthanasia, but they just want to go to be with the Lord. They're just tired. It sounds as if Paul's talking like that. And he's saying, I'm groaning. I, I just long to be clothed with my dwelling from heaven. Lord, just take me. Take my life. Let me go. But see, he's going to clarify that's not what he's talking about. And this is a commonly misinterpreted passage. He's not talking about dying. Look at it. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed. In other words, it's not that I want to die. It's not what I want. But, he says, I want to be further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. That's why I'm groaning. So, <clears throat> what is Paul wishing will happen? What 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about. But we're not all going to sleep. But we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The last trump, the trumpet will sound. We shall be changed. Paul says, I'm groaning for that. Are you groaning for that? That's what I'm talking about. That groaning communicates a sense of imminency. Turn to Philippians 4, 5. <clears throat> Paul admonishes this church in this way. He says, let your gentleness be known to all men. Here's this consideration. The Lord is at hand. See that different church? Just talk to them about being of one mind and rejoicing. Verse 4, doing it always. Verse 5, let your gentle spirit be known to all. The Lord is near. First Thessalonians 1.9. Talking to these converts, he says, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And again, that wrath is unqualified. You're waiting for his son from heaven, who was given to us to deliver us from the wrath to come. What wrath? Well, just think about the sequence coming in just a few chapters. A couple chapters later, chapter 4 and 5 in the book, he says, Hey, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to sorrow as others sorrow. 
I mean, here's what's going to happen with this catching away. Right after that, day of the Lord, destruction is coming. But hey, be encouraged, be strengthened. God hasn't appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Whether we are awake or asleep, we're going to be together with Jesus. That matches what he said in chapter 1. That they should wait for God's Son, who's going to deliver them from that wrath to come. What encouragement that is. Turn to Titus 2.11. Titus 2.11. The grace of God that brings salvation appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the great passages speaking of the deity of Jesus Christ. He is our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at James 5. <clears throat> totally different New Testament writer. Verses 7 and 9. Therefore be patient, brethren, until what? Coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, judge is standing at the door. I, mean, I love those illustrations, right? A farmer waiting for the fruit. The judge standing at the door. So the Lord is near. He's at hand. The knob is turning on the door, as it were. It's Imminent. Look at 1 John 2, 28. Here's another writer. John writes this, verse 28. Now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him that is coming. And when he talks about this in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. <laughs> you can see that John is using the thought of the Lord's coming and the possibility of being ashamed when he comes as a motivation to get these people to live a certain way. I won't have you turn to Revelation, but I'll just give you these additional verses. I think in your notes as well. Chapter 3.11, chapter 22.7, 22.12, and 22.20, they all record the Lord saying, I am coming quickly. Now, I want to ask you a question. When you read those statements, such a variety of New Testament books, what is your impression about the imminency of Jesus coming for you? Remember that it means it's near, but you're not quite sure of the timing. They're expectantly waiting. So what impression do those passages make on you about the expectation of the early church. What were they expecting? What were they waiting for? I mean, you know, the second coming, well, that could be pegged in its timing pretty closely. Because Jesus himself gave us the signs. And he said, you know, when you see this happening, you, you know it's near. But what are all these Christians in the New Testament waiting for? What is Paul groaning for? Clearly, the impression given to any honest New Testament reader is that Jesus' coming could be when? Any moment. 
<clears throat> J. Button Payne, who himself is a post-tribulationist, meaning that his personal position the exact opposite. He believes that the rapture is at the end of the tribulation and not before, so he's, you know, he's on the other side of this whole issue. He says this, no natural reading of the Scripture would produce any other conclusion. And he's talking about these verses. He's talking about the whole question of imminency. He says, no natural reading of these verses would bring you to any other conclusion except that the coming of Jesus is imminent. You understand that? I mean, if you believe that the tribulation must take place before you are caught up in the rapture, I'm telling you, Jesus cannot come tonight. He cannot come tomorrow. He cannot come next week. He cannot come in the month of June. He cannot come next year, 2023. I mean, he can't even come in 2024 or 2025. 26 or 27 or 28. The soonest he could come would be the midwinter of 2029. I'm not trying to be facetious because that's exactly the position you have to take if you believe the last set of sevens in Daniel 9 represents seven years, seven literal years. <coughs> if those are literal years, just like the first 69 sets of seven were, then Jesus cannot come today if he's only coming at, at the end of the tribulation. That's why someone like J. Barton Payne, the post-tribulationist, concedes that the Bible is very clear on the doctrine of imminency. And you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would he concede that? Well, he goes on to say this. He says, well, you don't understand. We could already be in the tribulation, right? In fact, a lot of the tribulation could already be passed. We could be right towards the end of it. But he gets around it. Uh, really? Uh, you know, given the way the Bible describes those events, do you actually think we might be in it? That is very hard to prove. But that's exactly the position those people have to take. Or they have to take the position that all of these events already happened in the first century. I mean, if you believe that all of those events in Chapter 6 to 18 have already happened. Well, then I guess, yeah, Jesus could really come right now. That's called the preterist view. Although, again, it's a whole lot of mental gymnastics to force the events of chapter 6 to 18 into the first century. There's no clear interpretive uh, key for that. Or <clears throat> there's another view that says that these events are happening successively in church history. And, you know, we don't know exactly where we are in that whole uh, chapters, but be going on for a long time. We're somewhere in chapter 6 to 18. Kind of pains view. You've been in the tribulation. You just didn't know it. And then, of course, there's the other view. And this is the one our Anglican brethren would take, and I would take strong issue with them on this, which is that, well, we're not talking about literal things at all. How could it be literal? It's all symbolic. And all of that's going on all the time. Well, the beast is here. Uh, the false prophet is here. The devil is here. The judgments are here. And these locust-like things coming up out of the pit are here. These are all just symbols for what you're going to face tomorrow morning at the office when you go to work. You know, you face these locusts out of the pit happening all the time. I got a bus like that. <laughs> okay. 
That's how it is. And I guess Revelation 19 could happen today. But don't you see, that's how these people have to get around the indisputable nature of imminency in Scripture. But if you are going to be consistent in your Bible interpretation, and it's seven literal years, and the events are to be taken successively as written in Revelation, and you believe in imminency, which is crystal clear, then the two events are separate. The catching away of the church at any moment, then the second coming in flaming fire to bring the climax of God's wrath at the end of the tribulation period. In closing, I really have to ask you this. Do you believe that the Lord could come back today? If you believe that, then you must also believe in a difference between these two events. I want to suggest to you that the right spirit to have is the one Paul admonished to the Corinthians. The spirit to have is Maranatha. Maranatha, our Lord comes. Or maybe it's Maranatha, the prayer. Oh Lord, come. We believe that this is the spirit of the New Testament church. It should be our spirit today if we are truly honest in the way we look and read Scripture. Pray together. Father, we thank you for the clarity of reading your word and being able to understand it. The spirit gives us guidance. Father, we love our brethren who disagree with us in some of these matters. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to be gracious, help us to be loving in our responses. Pray that you would prepare us for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we look, be caught up in the air to be with him. What a wonderful, wonderful day that will be. Encourage our hearts with this truth. May we all be looking for his coming with great expectancy, purifying our lives, even as we are pure in Christ, we're admonished to do. Bless us, Father, as we go through this world that's increasingly engulfed in evil. Your restrainer do his work. Hold back the tide. We may continue to live in peace. Hear the gospel openly and freely. Give you thanks for our time in Jesus.